cloud, lend me your strength. Let us defy destiny together. Never. podcast with me your host lauren ash and the beloved nicholas tyson beloved <laughs> i beloved you yeah. oh, that, oh that's sweet i like that thank you yeah um today we wanted to talk about the avatar but basically the person that you become right in a video game but we also wanted to talk about actually the difference between you as a character in a game and you as say yourself in a game so this means yourself being like you customize a character, you have character customization, and you really want to insert and immerse yourself right as a person or a, an expression of yourself that you can't maybe normally express in the everyday like world uh, versus right you're given a character like say Sora in Kingdom Hearts and you become Sora. And what does it mean actually to say play someone like Sora that you actually hate but then you actually identify more with other characters. Wait, wait, we hate Sora? Why do we hate Sora? Um, well, okay, so hating Sora is, okay, I hate Sora because <laughs> he always go. felt really childish to me. Um, and he never really took ownership or responsibility for his actions. It really felt like he was just leading, being led along and kind of ignorant of everything that was around him. Uh, for me... Sora was not like a, a character that I identified with. Uh, I'm a little bit of a leader. I really wanted to take ownership. And I was also a little bit alone as a kid. So I was like, Sora, like, why do you have to be followed by your friends all the time? Why do you have to do these things? Thank you for bringing up Sora. This is what Sora looks like. Okay, his outfit is cool here. Um, his original outfit, which is actually one, two, three down, um, is where he's like bright blue. Oh, yeah, this and one, he's this like been given right. this power. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I just didn't, I just didn't like Sora. This is more Disney. Um, it was more Disney, right? I didn't really like Sora. I really liked Riku and I really liked Kairi a lot because even though Kairi was kind of like waiting for him to return, like she still had like her own life. And Riku was like, I mean, he was like the villain and I liked villains as a kid. So I always identify more with the villain. Um, but so I'm playing Kingdom Hearts and I was given Sora, right? As that character. And through his play and maybe my like otherness to Sora, I kind of recognized how I didn't like him and I learned more about myself. Right. And that's kind of my main argument for why games kind of give you characters to kind of foil yourself against versus like I'm playing Cyberpunk 2077 and I am very much making someone that is myself, but it breaks. That's a bad example because it kind of breaks down into this weird unimmersive experience for myself where V is the character you're playing yeah. and V sounds and acts and says things very distinctly that I would not normally say. And yeah. so that's where the second half of self-insertion, you're inserting yourself into an environment, 
doesn't always come from the dialogue. It comes from the gameplay choices that you make. And so that right there is the like Guild Wars, for example, is a good uh, Dragon Age somewhat. Um, but yeah, like is how you actually create that character. And yeah. so there really is a spectrum. And at one point, maybe I should do like a little infographic to kind of show you this spectrum for where I believe, let's call it uh, the character and the creator, I guess, where you're given a very stock character versus where you self-insert your own creation lies. And I would say cyberpunk is kind of in the middle, right? Mass Effect is definitely in the middle. Dragon Age 2 due to tech constraints and production constraints had to go to the middle. And then Inquisition kind of put it back towards character creator, but still had it in the middle. Skyrim is on the complete opposite, right? Most MMOs are also kind of on the complete opposite. Um, I actually re-downloaded Dragon Age 2 because I was super excited to replay it. It's pretty funny. Uh, yeah, so that's exciting. The character. Yeah, I think the female, no, I was going to say the female version is canon, but it's actually the male version that's canon. Yep. Um, I think that the, it is unfortunate because, but I will say that the female version of the Inquisition is canon. So a female Inquisitor. So it took them two games, but they got there. Um, and Femhawk is the best hawk. <laughs> yeah. And so I'd really like to know kind of your thoughts on the two things that I was talking about, Nicholas, because... Yeah. I think that for me, it's going to be more important to kind of show our listeners that maybe I'll do like a visual infographic or something to show our listeners that spectrum and then go through and kind of under undermine everything. Or I can talk about maybe each game as well and be like, this is why this does this way. This is why it does this way, like, yeah. et cetera. Well, so the thing is when you identify with a particular character in a game. So we we had a previous discussion about this. Um, and one of the conclusions that I came to is that sometimes you identify with a character in a game, even if they're very much unlike you, because they provide for you an outlet from whatever like social or physical or like some constraint that you have in your own life. So, for example, like, you know, you may identify with um, like a gay or lesbian character in a game precisely because like you might be, you know, growing up in like the rural Midwest where to out yourself as gay in high school will probably get the shit beaten out of you. Um, and so you latch on to, say, a particular character in a game, not just because they have they provide you that outlet for an experience you don't get to have in your own life but also because you can inhabit them and sort of it's very different from just like sympathizing with say like a character of that type in like some other form of media like you say you know animation or um you know just a regular film precisely because you get to both experience their life and make their choices for them and so actually the dragon age Dragon Age is probably not as great of an example of this. I'm trying to think of it like, so for example, like, you know, classic Final Fantasy games or uh, what's off the top? What was on, sorry, what was on the, um, the sort of character inhabiting end of the spectrum for you? I can't remember what you said. Kingdom Hearts? Kingdom Hearts, yeah. So Sora. So in the, in the case of Sora, <clears throat> in, in that game, like it's, it's probably different for you, Lauren, than it is for me because like, you know, I was sort of a goofy 
boy like that at you know one point in my life i didn't necessarily identify with sora because i played that game much later in life but i definitely identified with say cloud in the original final fantasy 7 even though i was mm -hmm. an adult at the point that you know at the time that i played it at the same time i was an adult who had just finished college i had yet to start grad school I was working basically the same crappy kind of like grocery store job that I had had, you know, before college, despite that. So I had gotten all this education and yet I was doing like the same crappy thing in my life that I had done before. I had yet to move on to something else. And so like the way in which like cloud himself, like spoiler for the game, by the way. So <laughs> clouds realizes that like he personally is not actually the thing he's always believed himself to be. And so for then me as a person playing that game where like I had believed that, you know, I was going to go through college. I was going to send through the class letter. I was going to escape my, you know, working class background. And then that didn't happen in the same way that it didn't happen for a cloud. Like that resonated with me in a way that like if I had just created any old character and then that character had been inserted in the game, it wouldn't have resonated emotionally as much. So that's sort of yeah. this weird, like it's, it's almost like a dilemma because you know, when people design games, they believe that sort of like when you take the old like classic pen and paper system where you can design everything from top to bottom, you can design what your character looks like, how they behave, what their stats are, what their class is. There's an assumption that that's almost more immersive. And yet there's this way in which like taking a fully scripted, fully fleshed out character can feel more immersive to people because of that sort of like emotional resonance to their own life. Yeah, and that's exactly like has a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, which I've kind of labeled like accessibility in the avatar. Yeah. And that basically means that when you make things accessible and what the avatar um, truly means. And for those of you maybe just joining us, the avatar or in avatar is not the Blue People movie or Avatar The Last Airbender, <laughs> which I like both of them. Um, They're related uh, to the avatar same concept, but yeah. They are related to the same concept. Um, avatar is a... Uh, it's basically the character or the persona or the, the way you interact with the world. And so in Skyrim, you could say the avatar is, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> not, these um, <laughs> not these people. Not these people. You could say the avatar is the thing that you create, right? Uh, it's your, it could just be a, a username, right? On Twitter is kind of like an avatar even. Um, but also oh, in the game, Sora is it's your a, avatar. It's a, it's a handle. But like if you create an RP Twitter, your Twitter handle okay. is yeah. your avatar. Yeah. Sure. The RP yeah. community is pretty high in Twitter. That's the yeah, reason yeah. why I brought it up. Yeah. Um, but the avatar would be like Sora is your avatar, but it comes from the fact that you created an avatar because you were doing Skyrim or you were doing your own personal created character. Um, and you brought up something really interesting because I think that a lot of game designers happen upon accessibility and emotional resonance in a very... Um, in, in an accidental way. I think they accidentally design emotional residence and accidentally design, I think, emotional accessibility at times. And some, sometimes they don't. But I will say that I think what's really interesting is that for me, accessibility isn't just, can I play the game mechanics or the game system? It's, do I see myself in the game? And there's a really big game called Life is Strange that a lot of people really enjoyed playing because they felt that they could see themselves as Max or they could see themselves as Chloe. And that right there to me, regardless of my opinions on the game itself, is incredible because it showed people that they were worthy 
right? Or it allowed them and empowered them to be the protagonist and not just within the game, but within their own lives, yeah. right? And when we look at a game and we look at this divide between you're given a character like Chloe, right? Where you can look at it or you're given a character like Sora or I think more aptly, let's use your example of Cloud. You can really resonate with the story that he goes through because it gives you these emotional points. And yeah. for me, I think that that allows more emotional resonance or ludonarrative resonance because you are physically acting out the story of that character physically or yeah. I mean, physically experiencing it in the game. And then Maybe you can take that experience, experience, viscerally experiencing yeah. it in the game. Yeah. And to viscerally experience a game, it isn't just like the God of War or the Devil May Cries of the world that have a visceral game experience. Yeah. I would say Final Fantasy VII is also very visceral because it's emotional, right? Yeah. Then you'll have games, though, like Cyberpunk 2077, which are have the huge top-down... I guess top down, bottom up, I'm not sure. Have the huge character creator where they're like, here are all of your customization options. Here are all of your stats. Here's like these really cool makeup options or Baldur's Gate 3 even is actually a better example of this. If here are all of those things, but the only way that you as a player in your avatar, right, are able to actually identify with yourself in the world is your reaction as a character to that world. And I think that the best two examples of this for, for the purposes of this podcast episode are going to be right cloud and final fantasy seven, right. For you. Yeah. And for me, Baldur's on one end, right. That's a defined character. Yeah. And then on this other end, you'll have um, Baldur's gate three, which has really done an incredible job of being able to put you in the position of a player of a unique individual that every time you're actually a completely different, let's call it persona or a different avatar. And that's what makes Baldur's Gate 3 so accessible because it can show you, right? Um, You can truly show off yourself and empower yourself that potentially maybe you aren't able to do something in the physical world. You can now do it in, right, Baldur's Gate 3. Maybe you are, right, trying to come out to your parents, but you can come out in a video game. And so now you can express your sexuality. You can express your gender identity in a way, especially now in these COVID times that you're just not able to express. Yeah. Right. Or maybe you have social anxiety and you play someone that has no social anxiety. Well, now you can play a game like Baldur's Gate three and you are completely just flirting with everyone. You're right. Because you have no interactions. Yeah. And as a game designer, I think that sometimes we talk about, how do we create and show more diverse heroes or show more diverse characters or show more of these types of people in a game world? And we kind of forget the reason why is so that we can empower those people and emotionally resonate right with those yeah. people, just like Chloe um, and just like right, Cloud as well. So I would interject because I think you're talking about two act, two very important axes. You've already identified them. I just want to name them. So you have one axis that is sort of the openness. In other words, the degree of like things that you can manipulate, you can change. So if we're talking specifically about um, an avatar, an in-game avatar, the number of things that you as a player can manipulate about that character's persona, the way they look, their stats, like their abilities, et cetera, et cetera. So like the more you can do that, the more open the game is, and the less you can do that, the more sort of narrow or constrained it is. But then you're also talking about another axis. So that's, so we have our X axis and now we have our Y axis. Our Y axis, is depth and so um if you want to go back to listen to i mean 
I think it was a good, a good chill rant. Maybe you guys disagree, but I did an episode on granularity and granularity is one of those things that can give things depth. Now, depth doesn't necessarily mean sort of a range of choices. It means degree of choice. And one of the reasons why a game that you don't have a lot of range of choices in can still feel like have a real emotional resonance is because it has a it has a depth of feel and you can achieve that depth of feel in terms of like you know you can actually do it in terms of gameplay mechanics but you can also do it in terms of storylines um you know choices that you know you allow a character to make um particular types of like sexual expression you know all those sorts of things that's what gives it depth it doesn't necessarily, you know, you don't have to have a range of choices, but like, let's say there is one, let's say you created a game in which there's only one character that you can romance. But let's say that that one romance, you can do it in any of like a dozen different ways. There are a dozen different ways it could go wrong. Even if it goes wrong, you may be able to bring it back. That's granularity, that's depth. And because of that, because you can sort of involve yourself, even though it's predefined for you, you can involve yourself to varying degrees like that has a greater meaning and it has a greater resonance precisely because I mean, depth is the only way I can, I can, I can describe it because you, you could also have like a huge range of choices in game, but they could feel really shallow because it's like, okay, you do this one thing to romance this character. You do this one thing to romance this character. Like sometimes harvest moon, like romances in harvest moon games can feel like that where it's like, so, okay, if I want to marry, like, you know, the, the, the bartender girl in the town, I just have to give her 100 gifts. So you give her a gift, the next day you give her a gift, the next day you give her a gift, the next day, like, that's extremely shallow. Because th th there's no sort of, like, gameplay interaction, there are no different things you have to do, there are no ways it could go wrong, you just do this repetitive task over and over again. Yeah, and so this is actually really, really great, and I wanted to make sure we have those axes, because I want to talk about Dragon Age Inquisition for a minute here, for the reason why, despite kind of having less openness, which may surprise some of you because I am a huge Dragon Age fan, has less openness than, say, Baldur's Gate 3, yep. actually inc has incredible depth, or also maybe you could say complexity, right, yeah. to those choices and to that openness as well, is that you are able to do precisely what Nick was bringing up, which was that you are able to right? create different choices, go into a romance, maybe kind of futz it up, kind of go back into it, um, and it really just isn't like, right, give someone a hundred gifts. Yeah. Right? It also has a complexity of the types of reactions that you can have, specifically with the romances or at least companion relationships, I should say, yeah. that while there is a system for if um, you want to become friends with someone like Sarah, if you, uh, it makes the relationship depth have depth because as her character, if you do not fundamentally believe or validate some of her beliefs and like you say stand opposed to them she will halt the friendship because she will not trust you and that's yeah. kind of very much what would happen in the real world is if someone has a very staunch belief system that you you don't have and i'm not going to necessarily say exactly what i'm meaning but i hope you understand <laughs> you will cut those people right from your life you will block them on twitter you'll be like that is a very bad thing now sarah's is not in that vein at all but to the game's systems it is, right? And the system yeah. mechanically is, you have to validate who Sarah is as a person. If you somehow invalidate her as a person, she will not become best friends with you, as is, you know, normal friendship. And that's actually what pushes it down in the complexity meter versus, say, Cyberpunk 2077, which really wanted to sell an experience where you have a lot of openness in what you can do. You have a lot of openness in who you're supposed to be able to romance or how you 
uh, say personally express yourself onto the world, but is actually incredibly shallow because there are only say two romance options um, and they are all gender and voice locked. So something that I am really looking forward to is actually going back through and playing as a trans man um, because I want to know if I still choose the male voice with the male body, which is the only, um, what's the word, uh, the only lock, right, yeah. to a relationship with a woman in this game. Uh, trans is not necessarily defined um, as I have been, like, have been told by trans people. Um, but please, yeah, neither, like, neither of us are trans. So if we're neither of us are trans. So, yeah. So apologies. please, like, definitely leave us something in the comments um, uh, for our right, uh, you know, benign understanding almost. Um, is that transness is not necessarily always defined by your voice or your predisposed right, gender no. or body type, mm. right? Which means that the game is already making a statement that, um, or statement, right? That if you have a female voice and a male body or vice versa, that like that is supposed to be a representation of gender, which is absolutely shallow and, and incorrect on so many axes. Uh, so for me, if I play a trans man, however, and can because I have full, I have somewhat fully transitioned to a male body with a male uh, voice because this is the definition of say this character's transness. Yeah. I think I can romance the female character, which is an incredibly forward step in games. However, it is still a shallow experience in Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven because mm -hmm. the way of romancing that character is male body, male voice plus do like six dialogue options equals she will ask to like you know. Like you will have romance. Yeah, the it's woman is even worse. Yeah. It's extremely rigid, right? Yeah. And that's what we're talking about with depth and complexity. And what we also, what I also mean by accessibility, because I just don't mean can the game be played by a lot of people. I actually mean can people emotionally resonate with and make it accessible for those experiences that you can. And Cyberpunk 2077, unfortunately, it just completely falls short versus Dragon Age Inquisition and actually more Dragon Age 2. Because uh, everyone's bisexual in Dragon Age 2, um, yeah. allows you to have a plethora, not just of, say, relationships, but also have a plethora of gender identities, despite only have, saying, male or female. Yeah. Um, because it allows you kind of that sexual, uh, you know, like uh, expression or sexuality, expression of sexuality within those games. Yeah. Dragon Age 2, most notably, because their relationship uh, metrics already, since everyone's bisexual, actually is on a rivalry relationship or a friendship relationship so you can agree with everybody and validate them or conversely you can say everything you think is wrong i love you anyway and you can actually have those two different right markers and i think that's absolutely fantastic because right on the openness of choice scale you only get to choose your class and say very basic things of your appearance and that's it you are always hawk and so while Dragon Age 2 is actually on the spectrum, say that's more closed, it actually still manages, right, all of that depth. Yeah. Baldur's Gate 3 deserves the praise that it is getting because it is incredibly open and incredibly complex. Yeah. And I think that that's what makes it so accessible. That's why people, especially of marginalized genders, of marginalized sexual orientations and, and marginalized like minorities are looking at this game and going, this is incredible. This is accessible. 
but to be fair, it is not accessible to play at all. <laughs> like I need like, yes. like so, three manuals. <laughs> yeah, so, for, so for those of you who are not aware of this, this is our way of sort of walking back the fact that we kind of took a big dump on Baldur's Gate 3 in, in, in an earlier episode. So if, if you like, it's, it's explicitly labeled. If you want to go back and, li- and listen to all of the things that we found wrong with the game, it's there. But that, But that's the thing, Lauren, is that like, it's important when you're doing analysis that you understand that like, it's it's always a complex of like positives and negatives. You can't just like, yeah, you can't just take a dump and then be like, bye. <laughs> see, see, see. No, exactly. I am I'm very much loving Baldur's Gate three. I actually did forget that we did an episode like that did dump on it a lot because I think that when we did it, there was a very specific thing we were very upset about. Yeah, and right. yeah. my my friend actually said there's a camera option that turns like off or on a camera feature, and I went what? So I immediately checked this box that was like something about camera, and then I play the game and I experience no change, and so I'm like, okay, maybe it's a bug. Maybe they wanted to be able to get rid of it. And the further I played the game, the more that I was like, okay, I can see why this camera works, yeah. but. That's not what made me excited because I still hate it. It was, mm. man, this game is incredibly accessible. Yeah. Even though originally I'm playing it and I'm like, nobody can play this game. If you don't know Dungeons and Dragons, you're lost. Like th- it's true. So the mechanics might not be, but I would still say, right? That Boulder Skate 3 is an incredibly accessible game yeah. for all of that. So that's hilarious. This is a good way of going. Sorry, Baldur's Gate. We, uh, <laughs> yeah, we jumped on you, but we really love you, Larian. Make, keep making yeah, games. So, 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 to, so to take it home, like to, to, to kind of like bring everything back together. So I think we made, so the case that we were making for sort of the game in which you identify with a particular character in the game. So this is in many ways, the inverse of that. It, in fact, Baldur's Gate 3 does really well, actually what the pen and paper game does which is that it not only allows you to sort of, it doesn't just give you a bunch of options with what to do with your character. It also allows you to inhabit that character. Because one of the major differences between the pen and paper game and literally any video game is a degree of fluidity. In other words, there is a degree of performance that you have to do in sort of pen and paper role playing that video games don't necessarily allow for. But insofar as Baldur's Gate 3 tries to be a fifth edition simulator, it actually does allow for a lot more of those role-playing options, which is what the genre is called. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And then just to kind of like clarify as well for people, there are three things we didn't talk about. One is right. The fully realized character like cloud and final fantasy seven. We also talked about right. Baldur's gate three, fifth edition simulator, but there's this very middle point that you're going to find a lot of games are on. And when I say a lot of games, I mean, every single game that, you probably are familiar with the halo the overwatches but dragon age also kind of fits into here interestingly and this third middle ground right is going to be called the voiced uh chosen character right so you are the inquisitor in dragon age inquisition now you can perform however you want but you're still the inquisitor in skyrim right while you have a lot of choice you are the um, you are not voiced. So you truly are, even though they call you, say, the Dragonborn. In Skyrim, I would not consider that a Mass Effect where you are Shepard, a fully realized and fully voiced character. If you've ever played this uh, French game called Greedfall, um, which I highly recommend, you are also fully voiced. And so those are the three really kind of distinct categories we're looking at when we look at this axis, because it's how much openness of choice or how much choice do you have 
right? Versus how much is prescribed to you. And then also, right, what is the depth or complexity of those choices? Is it pretty shallow and surface or is it gonna be, right, very deep? And then I think that when you, as a game designer, are looking at these, Baldur's Gate 3 has no voiced main characters. And this honestly parallels kind of my game design philosophy, which is interesting because I really love the middle ground. I loved fully voiced characters. But now playing Baldur's Gate 3, I'm recognizing why and also the validity of not having a voiced protagonist and how yeah. much freedom that gives you, even though, right, on the complete other flip side where you will have a completely voiced cast, how can you keep that as deep, right, uh, in a rigid and as accessible and as um, complex yeah. Right. And allowing that accessibility of the avatar as possible. So yeah. I just wanted to also clarify that. So when you play these games, you recognize that voice acting, right. Also has a very big hand in creating yes. that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that point, Lauren. That was, that was absolutely fantastic. And we would once again, like to thank all of you for listening. And if you are a dev currently working on Baldur's Gate three, consider this our penance for our previous episode, we do actually really appreciate what you're doing. We, we express all of these things in the spirit of generosity and hope that we can all make and play the best games we possibly can. Lauren, is there anything you want to say before we leave these fine people? No, there's nothing that I can say that you have not already said. We love it. Please keep making these amazing games. And we hope that our podcasts help you keep making more amazing experiences. And don't forget to leave a note in the comments. Leave us a review. Please subscribe to our YouTubes and to our, um, can you subscribe to a podcast? Yes, please subscribe yeah, to our can. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the primary way uh, people And follow get us. <laughs> yes. And uh, <laughs> sorry, I just get links. Um, and please follow us on Twitter as well for all of our updates. We really appreciate your support. <laughs>